Hello everyone, welcome to Tennis with an Accent. This is Saqib. Uh, this podcast, as you know, is produced by Radio Influence. The podcast numbers are growing and this is one of the better days for the podcast as we have a special guest, totally out of our league, uh, two-time French finalist from Sweden. Robin Sorling has taken time out from his busy schedule to come on Tennis with an Accent. Hello Robin, it's an absolute honor to have you here. Thank you. Hello. It's 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 an honor for me too to be able to be part of your podcast. No, you're too kind. <laughs> so I'm still projecting myself as a fan, even though I have this small podcast that is gaining popularity and, uh, you know, some uh, listeners all over the world. And this is a conversation I'm very excited since I spoke with your agent. And now finally the day is here. So let me just uh, ask some questions that, you know, I'm sure you've been asked before. Uh, I'll try to keep it a little original. Uh, yep. So you come from Sweden. Uh, uh, definitely a lot of tennis history there. Uh, when I grew up uh, watching tennis, Edberg and Willander and Jared and Nystrom were the big names and then followed by uh, the next class, you know, that came in uh, Bjorkman. And now you were one of the best players of Sweden uh, very recently. So who were your inspirations and how did you get into tennis? That's a basic question, but I just want to get some background. Yeah, I mean, basically exactly what you said, you know, when I grew up, um, tennis was such a big, big sport in this country, you know, almost everybody played tennis. I think that's a lot of because we had so many good players in the in the past. Um, and during mid 80s, uh, up until beginning of 90s, you know, there were um, there were so many tennis courts in, in Sweden popping up everywhere. Of course, mostly indoor courts, but all communities, all cities, they started to build more and more tennis courts. And uh, of course, that's that's how many kids are starting. And my dad, um, my dad played a little bit. You know, he used to play a lot of table tennis when he was younger, but. Uh, during the time I was born, uh, he switched to tennis and played uh, a few times every every week with friends, and that's how I started. You know, I started to follow him there on to the courts when I was four or five years old, and straight away I liked it. Uh, <clears throat> tennis was I, as a kid, I did many different different kinds of sports. You know, I played ice hockey, I played I played soccer, handball, but I liked tennis more, way more than the other sports, and I think. I think it's because tennis was the only individual sport I did. And I think individual sports suited my personality much better than, than the team sports. So, like you said, you know, a lot of indoor courts growing up and uh, you yeah. had a pretty good game indoors. You know, when you made to the World Tour finals, you did reach the semifinals. So uh, this conversation is pretty rich from my perspective because there are a lot of questions. So there's no agenda there's a lot of questions that will come to my mind. So let's stick a current question in there when you talk indoor tennis. Uh, do you feel the tennis calendar, which, you know, you were a player not too long ago, and the indoor season is becoming a grind by the time players arrive here from Asia? Uh, you don't see a lot of competitive matches. The World Tour Finals concluded two weeks ago, and there were a lot of one-sided matches. While yeah. back in the day when Becker was playing or Sampras or Ivan Isevich or Krychek, indoor season had some meaning. Uh, the, the race for London or when it used to be race for Germany or uh, Sydney, it used to be pretty intense. But now yeah. top men have qualified and some of those who come in, it's what I'm trying to say. Uh, the field is pretty lopsided. It's either Federer or Djokovic winning this or at least staying very competitive and other players are fatigued coming in. Chilich hasn't had a great record. So what is happening there? You are a player, you know, current generation. A lot of your opponents are still in the top 10. So how do you see that? shaping and is there a problem 
when tennis players are mentally fatigued and game wise they're tired when they approach uh, the indoor season and and the season in Bercy and then London yeah of course uh, i think you know i always said uh, even when i was playing for many years that i think the season the season in tennis are way too long there's there's basically no off season at all you know if you play uh, you were talking about Silish, for an example. He played the World Tour Finals, and after that, he had to play the Davis Cup, which means you know he can take a week rest maximum, and then he needs to tr- to start training again. And I think that's the reason why we see so many injuries in in in, in tennis today, especially especially on the top guys. You know, uh, of course, they uh, they win a lot of more matches than most of the other uh, players, and it's 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 difficult. I think. Tennis needs to do a change. I, if you look at so many other sports like soccer, football, ice hockey, whatever, you know, they have a much longer longer off season where they have time to rest and recover and prepare and train for, for the upcoming season. And we don't really have that in tennis. And I think that's tough. I, will, I think not only the, the players would benefit from having a, a longer off season, but also the spectators, you know, I think... They will get to see the top players much more often. They will get to see the top playing uh, players performing better when they're playing. And you see the top players like now, like Federer, Nadal, even Djokovic. Everybody they play less and less tournament um, just to to have a chance to prolong their career. And also, I think when they go to a tournament, they they're hundred percent ready. And that's when you get to see the best tennis. Do you so think a players' I, union could be the answer? Because this is something that has been doing round since Djokovic had the players' meeting uh, at Australian Open this year. And there's a lot of uh, momentum on this topic, at least from tennis media. Yeah. A lot of folks yeah. believe that could be the answer. Yeah, I think uh, I think that could be could be an answer. Could be one of the answer. It's it's not easy, you know. You see that since so many of the top players, they're trying to prolong their career by playing less tournaments. Uh, and I think the sufferers, the sufferers are the smaller tournaments, the 250 tournaments. Um, you know, I worked myself as a tournament director for Stockholm Open for a few years, and we realized, you know, to get a top player, the top players, they they don't really want to play the 250 tournaments. They want to focus on the bigger tournaments, and it's 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 so difficult because to get a top player now these days to to smaller 250 tournaments you have to pay a lot of money for uh, in in appearance fees which which is difficult for a smaller tournament you know uh, they're struggling a lot financial financial wise um, i think all the other tournaments if you look at the grand slam the masters tournaments they're doing extremely well but what happened is that the, the smaller tournaments, there's so many of them. There's off there every week. There's often, you know, not only one every week. There's, you know, at least a couple or sometimes even three, four tournaments every week. So um, I think for sure that would help a lot to to uh, to create a schedule where there's less tournaments uh, and a longer off season. I think everybody will be winners at the end. But but of course it's not easy, you know the. It's not easy to to get rid of of some of the 250 tournaments, um, so it's 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 really challenging. But I think in the in the long run, something something really has to be done to help the players, but also, as I said, to help to help everyone else, to help the sport in general. Mm. 
Interesting. I was going to bring the tournament director part a little later, but it's a good segue from a couple of questions that I have in mind. So you were a player not too long ago. I don't want to keep saying it, but that's a fact. You were a top player. You could, you know, <laughs> and coming from Sweden, this home yeah. tournament. So let's focus on that tournament. So when you came to that tournament, you were one of the big attractions, whoever the director was. And then you directed the tournament uh, till last year. So just mm-hmm. compare uh, the roles. So what did you learn? Suppose if you were requesting, I don't know if indoor season, do players request night matches in, in indoor tournaments? Because in Grand Slams and uh, outdoor tournaments, day and night matches have an impact with conditions. But in an indoor tournament, did you or other players request evening starts? Uh, it's I, I would say it's very different. You know, some players like to play uh, during the day. Some players really like to play uh, during the during the evening. But when I worked, and I think they still work at the same way, you know, since you played uh, throughout the whole week, uh, it's difficult to get the big crowd during day matches in the smaller tournaments. You know, they, most of the people, they go to work, they finish the work at around five. So we always try to put the top players in the night session here in Stockholm. For example, we start... I think the first night session match is at 6.30 and then we have another match followed by after that. And that's, of course, when you mm-hmm. get most people to come. That's, of course, when you when you try to put the top-ranked players. Okay, so again, a very good, uh, at least, uh, response and has a lot of follow-up questions. One of those is, as a director, uh, when you did this, you land a top player, for example, and then... Uh, what are the uh, who's de- determining the schedule? I know a bunch of top players can want to play at a night session, but then is a TV demand the audience because a lot of audience would during a weeknight of come course. at night. So what yeah. makes a difference when the final schedule goes out? How much of uh, weightage is given to TV? How much of weightage is given to say, for example, what Federer wants if he's the guy, or what Djokovic wants? So how do you balance that act since uh, you d- you wore the yeah. tournament director hat? Yeah, sometimes sometimes you know with um, with uh, with indoor tournaments, you know you have the TV. The TV they have a lot of power. You know they pay a lot of money for the rights, and you have to. Um, you have to think about what they what they want, but also at the same time, you know, they they want to have it on the best times, which is during a weekday, which is normally around evening time, and that's when there there's more people, more spectators coming. And I think for indoor tournaments, it's a little bit different because it's easier. The conditions the conditions are not changing. Obviously, of course, if you play during the morning or if you play in the evening indoors compared to compared to playing outdoors you know the temperature is the same of course when there's if there's a little bit smaller arena and it's packed it's more people coming it can get a little bit more warmer inside inside the arena but most of the times it wasn't a problem so you know the the biggest problem i realize is that when when players in the small tournaments they play both singles and doubles and you have to try to adapt the schedule because as, uh, you always play the singles before the doubles, and sometimes it could be difficult, especially in the beginning of the week when there is more matches. So I think uh, where this is going is uh, it's pretty clear that indoor tennis is uh, you know different in demands because uh, the conditions don't play a factor. Mm-hmm. But let me ask you a top player question: uh, When you enter these tournaments, like most top ten players, I'm sure everyone's saying they're looking at the draw, but the goal is to win, right? Win the tournament. Yeah. So yeah. isn't it a disadvantage or an advantage if suppose uh, you know even an indoor tournament, the final is supposed to signed to 7 p.m. 
So you keep that in mind. So would you rather be playing all matches close to 7 p.m. or 8 p.m. so you have good recovery time, do press? Because if you do a day semifinal and then, or, or a late night semifinal and the final is a day final, say at 1 p.m., then you have less time. Even though it's a business, a lot of players accept that. They go through this. Yeah. But yeah. when you're a top, top guy at the tournament, are you requesting with those things in mind? Of course, yeah. So normally you put, if, if, if a player plays... Uh, first round match on 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 Monday or 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 Tuesday, and they play in the evening. You all, you you almost never put them early early uh, the next day. Uh, it's always that if some player starts to play uh, in the evening and he keeps on winning, you know, you try to put him late every time, and it's actually not a problem because normally, at least in Stockholm and many other tournaments, you know, you have night session matches up until Saturday, but normally you don't want to play. At least not here in Stockholm, you don't want to play the finals too late. You know, people have work the next day, you know, up until Saturday, it's it's completely fine. But the finals, you always try to put uh, around midday or around 1 to uh, 3 p.m. and not too late. Hmm. But there's then you always have the problem again, you know, if, if you play a night session, uh, you win and you're still in both singles and doubles, you have to play the singles before the doubles which means you have to play a little bit early than, earlier the next day because you have to have time to rest between the singles and the doubles. So that's sometimes when it creates create a scheduling problem for a tournament director. At that point, you will move the doubles back because say if you are a, have a Fabio Fonini playing in singles and doubles final, singles probably is tied to TV timing, so you cannot move singles. Then probably after a suitable rest, the players would come and play doubles. You, that's a logical approach? Yeah, I think so. I think normally, I think it's better, at least from my opinion, it's better to put the doubles finals before the singles finals. That's what I realized, you know, people come a little bit early, they watch the finals, because many times when you play the doubles after the singles, uh, many people leave after the singles finals and it could be pretty empty, empty mm, stands. Uh, but of course, when you have a player doubling, he's, he's, he reached the finals in singles and doubles, then of course you have to play the singles finals before. Because, because as I said, you know, you always play the singles. Uh, the players always want to play the singles before the doubles match. Okay, let's talk about some current topics and uh, you give enough information. I think a lot of listeners to the this podcast will enjoy like a mindset of a tournament director and coming from a top player who was making those requests and now you were accommodating those requests not too yeah. long ago. So, yeah. so Roger Federer, you know, uh, of course we know his importance to tennis, global superstar, one of the well-received players, I think, in all sports. So his name has been doing rounds because of, you know, the Labour Cup conflict with Australian Open and how he mm. played a lot of night matches. So we've talked a lot about this. Some people say it's a business. Some people say there's clear preference that he's getting preferred. And, you know, numbers don't lie. He played a lot of night matches in Australia. Yeah. Then there's another school of thought is he's close to retirement, even though he hasn't said it. So every time he goes on court, maybe a tournament director is thinking, well, you know, he could lose. So let's put him there for maximum ratings. But what's also going on is other top players like Djokovic and Nadal and, you know, some of the other top men sometimes don't get the night match. So what part of that is, uh, you know, is, is fair game to you or as a player? And now since you're a tournament director, maybe you become a tournament director again. Uh, what part of that is just purely business? And what is the balancing act here? Uh, you think maybe the tournament director should do more transparency? Why are they putting Federer out now? Of course, they put a statement out, but a lot of people are still thinking it's too late in the game. And uh, 
But at the same time, Federer does get a lot of night matches. Even before, you know, these last two Australian Open, he would still play on Labour all the time. And so for Nadal yeah. and Djokovic, I don't think they also played on Labour. So yeah, what I goes th- on when you read this and what is it that not meeting the common fans' eye? We discussed this a lot, but uh, guide us through. This one. Yeah, I think I think it's normal as a tournament director. You need the top players. They uh, they do so much for the tournament, and, and um, a majority of the fans they go to a tournament to watch the top players. That's just how it is. And as the tournament director, you have to you have to think a little bit different. Of course, you have to think as a businessman. You want to do the best for the tournament, and by doing the best you can and agree to some of the demands the top players has. Of course, you're doing the best. You're doing what is best for the tournaments. But I think the top players, they they get a lot more. Um, they get a lot more things. You know, they. Um, I would say the the tournaments they take better care to of them than the lower ranked players. You know, they they can they can get more demands. They can they can ask. Even you know, I heard about tournaments where where they 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 make the surface. Uh, for for the top players, you know the the top player can even demand what kind of surface he wants in the smaller tournaments. You know, so of course, you know it's it's um, the the 250 tournaments. They really they really need some of the top names because I think the smaller tournaments are are really struggling right now. And and as I said, financially it's really difficult. You have to pay a lot of money to to get the top five top player to the 250 tournaments. And uh, it's not easy for for many of the tournaments mm. to do that. So, you know, what you can do is that you can do everything you can for the top players to feel welcome, to feel well treated in the smaller tournaments. That's that increases the chances for the tournament to have the, that player coming back the next year again. Mm. Interesting. Uh, you said uh, top players because, of course, we know a former tournament director at Bercy uh, in a recent interview in, in some French newspaper mentioned that Roger Federer, uh, you know, there was a certain request or a certain suggestion for changing the tournament surface. And, um, mm-hmm. of course, his name has been out there now. So are there, is this a common request? I don't want you to name names uh, besides Federer. Is this a common practice if uh, an agent of a top player talks to a potential tournament like a 250 or a 500? So this is all common business or this is more like exceptional uh, yeah, business? I would say so. Of course, there's many of the top players. They, they have requests for uh, for what kind of surface they want. And, and uh, you know, sometimes uh, the tournament uh, can't meet their request. But uh, in many cases, they can. And of course, again, you know, they try to do everything they can to, to get to get the top players to, to choose their tournament and to come to, to play there because... It's 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 really good, and that's something that the the, the 250 or the, even the 500 sometimes that's that's what they need. They need to get the top players to play in their tournaments, and mm. it, it has been more and more difficult throughout the years because the scheduling is so so tough. Um, the top players they play less and less tournaments, and uh, you know I, I think they're doing a right thing. You know if you look at Nadal and Federer, I think Nadal only played nine eight nine or ten tournaments this year and then roger he skipped again the whole clay season i think they're doing a smart thing you know uh, i think they want to prolong their career as as long as they can and they i think they want to be 100 percent ready for for the big tournaments for the grand slams and for the masters tournaments um that's yeah i think they set up their whole schedule mm. based on the big tournaments you know their training schedule their 
when they're gonna have rest periods everything is based on to be 100% when the Grand Slams and the Masters tournaments are coming up yeah those guys are definitely thinking and planning way ahead now because there's a yeah. reason why Federer is playing this long and there's a reason I think when Nadal wants to extend his career yeah. Djokovic is very and fit but I'm sure they all schedule you know very yeah, precisely and, can, and very professionally they can, in one way they can afford to do it you know if you look at uh, a player ranked in in the 20s uh, he can do really well at Grand Slams as well but <clears throat> these top players they knew that if they if they can be healthy be in good shape coming into the grand slams you know 90% of the time they do well there they go deep uh, mm. uh, but if they're if they're coming into a grand slam not feeling 100% struggling a little bit with some small injuries they can also lose early so it's 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 really important compared to a top 20 player you know he needs to play a lot because he's going to have a lot of good results throughout throughout the year but he never really knows when those that's at least how i felt you know i never really know when i'm i'm going to play that well or when the results will come and in that way you know it it makes it a little bit more difficult to skip the the, the smaller tournaments uh, because you you feel like you have to play more because you lose a little bit more matches and some week here and there you're going to do really well you're going to win the tournament you're going to go really far but you never really know when that's going to happen you know if you look at the the top guys Djokovic Nadal Federer they know almost for certain that if if they come into a grand slam 100% healthy motivated and playing well they're going to go deep they're not going to mm. win it every time but at least you know they're going to reach the quarter semis finals and that's what they do all the time and that's what's what's so impressive and i think that's why they can afford also to play less tournaments throughout the year Okay, so how democratic is the process when it comes to like non-top players? For example, say a Gulbis or a, a Melzer, if they reach a final a week before and then they're playing your tournament in Stockholm and they say, hey, you know, I just reached final here. Uh, is it okay if I get a Tuesday night start? I mean, there are other big names in the tournament. Uh, how accommodating is that? Is it, I'm sure that's a very normal request, but uh, does that request get honored all the time? Because I know Federer wants to play on Wednesday or Nadal yeah. wants a Wednesday start, they'll get it. Yeah, yeah, of course they'll they'll most likely get it, and of course you as a tournament director you you always try to please everybody. You know you you want everybody to be to be happy, but it's of course it's impossible. But let's say if a player a lower ranked player plays final next week, you know you will try to do everything you can not to put him on on the Monday already. You will try to give him a few a few days rest, maybe put him a a uh, Wednesday or, or sometimes even a uh, Tuesday or sometimes even a Wednesday start but it's not easy you know it has to work out with the schedule as well so I mean it's a constant constant struggle especially in the beginning of the tournaments uh, for a tournament director the, the longer the longer the tournament goes on at the end it, it's so much easier there's less and less matches you know all right. So last question on this topic and then we move on to your playing days. Uh, so you talked about the appearance fee and every tournament has its own bucket. So how is that tied into the financial health of a tournament? Suppose if your first your goal is to try to land a Djokovic or a Nadal or a Federer or a Murray and, uh, you know, uh, don't throw any numbers if you don't feel like. But uh, the appearance fee, I'm sure these guys don't come cheap. So when you get those guys... How does that pay you back as a tournament financially? Do the TV rights depend on if you land a big name, you get a better deal with the TV? Because a lot of yeah. money in sports is coming through TV. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I think 
Roger played here in Stockholm in 2010. That's right. I was not working. I was playing myself. But from what I heard, you know, they they of course they had they had to paying a lot to pay him a lot of money, and I think they they went to the existing sponsors. You know, they had signed agreement with the existing sponsors, but they 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 told them we have a chance. Uh, here to we have a chance to get Roger playing here and and they basically asked for my money you know would you be able to pay a couple of more grants you know a couple of more hundred thousand just to have Roger here and and I think that's um, that's how they was able to get him here uh, but also at the stadium here you know the stadium here in Stockholm it's it's the the only indoor tournament when you play in an, an existing tennis club so I'm not sure the capacity is, I'm not three, four thousand spectators. And uh, from what I heard that year when Roger came, you know, we could have sold or they could have sold twice as many tickets, but it's just not possible. And of course, you have already signed the TV agreement. Most other times TV is not, uh, not often very willing to pay more just, just uh, to have Roger here. So. Um, it's nice to have him here, but sometimes uh, it's sometimes it it's really difficult, you know, for a smaller tournament to get that in investment back mm. in form of in form of more revenues, more tickets sold. Because we, I think that year, you know, they sold out every day. But I'm not sure it was if it was still enough to cover to cover the investment they made in in having Roger here. All right, so let's switch now to your tennis. Uh, uh, is it easy or has it gotten easier to talk about this stuff when you see a lot of those guys like Chilich and Wawrinka, they hadn't made their move when you made those two finals at Roland Garros. Now they are the two guys who've broken through the shackles and the rankings and have won majors. Uh, I know your, your career did not end on the terms you wanted. You know, you, you could still have been playing. Has it become easier to talk about this stuff? Yeah, now it's it's easier. And I realized, you know, uh, the longer the longer time it, it takes, or the longer time it gets from since I retired, the easier it gets, of course. But in the beginning, as you said, exactly, I was thinking about this a lot, you know, especially guys like Nishikori, Silic, uh, Babrinka, winning Grand Slams, and that was the players I beat a lot of times. I even have a winning record against most of them, or almost every one of them. Uh, and I was at that time when I had to retire, I was a higher ranked player. Uh, and then, yes, you know, a few years after that, they win in Grand Slams. Of course, it's it's really difficult to not think about what could have happened if I if I still was able to play. And also for so many years and even now, the top 10, it's starting to change a little bit. But for so many years, the top 10 was the same players it looked exactly, almost exactly the same from when I was playing, um, and I think that shows also what what an era era this has been. You know, we had three of the best players in the history playing at the same time: Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic, uh, and that was really difficult for all all other players that was ranked, you know, from number four down to number fifteen in the world. I always say that those three players, you know, especially Nadal and Federer, they did so much for the sport. In one way, it was so good for all the other a little bit lower ranked players. But also, of course, it was tough. You know, at one time, every Grand Slam was won by Nadal, Federer or Djokovic. That's what um, happened this year. <laughs> yeah, again, you know, still. And they're, they're all over 30 years old. Uh, and I think that 
that just shows how extremely good players they are. You know, as I said, I think it's three of mm. the best players in the history playing at the same time. It's yeah. it's just amazing, and it's just amazing to to see that they're still top players in the world, all of them. Uh, let's talk about uh, Magnus Norman. If I'm not mistaken, you had worked with him before, right? Yeah. Yeah, so we Stan Wawrinka, a colleague and opponent of yours, has now won three majors. Question in two 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 levels. First level is: Did you see Wawrinka becoming this kind of a champion? Because I remember playing, uh, uh, watching you and him play at 2006 U.S. Open first round, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, in Flushing Meadows. I think you both were very young. And secondly, Magnus Norman, of course, he gets a lot of credit, but you know he must have done a tremendous job, you know, with you and now with him. Uh, speak a little bit about his coaching style. Why he's so good in t- turning these you know talented players into uh, having great careers. Yeah, I think Wawrinka was a little bit when he started with Magnus. He was a little bit in the same situation as me. You know, many times I could beat the the big players. I could do well in the smaller tournaments, but I just couldn't do it regularly. And he Magnus helped me a lot. Not that much. I wouldn't say I were a better tennis player. Uh, when I was top five in the world compared to when I was top twenty in the world. I mean, if you look at uh, shot by shot or stroke stroke by stroke, but he helped me a lot mentally. He he um, he made me understand what it takes mentally to be a top player. And I'm not sure how how he worked with Stan, but as you said, you know, obviously they they had a tremendously good uh, partnership for for many years and. and and Magnus is a really good coach to be able to to get 100% out of the player. You know, he, he finds those small details, especially mentally, you know, that could change a really good player uh, to a top player. Uh, when you were coaching uh, one of the Ymer brothers, uh, what is it, Mikhail? Uh, I was coaching Elias. Elias, sorry. Yeah. So did you take some of, uh, again, uh, subconsciously, some of the traits that Magnus showed as a coach because this was your first time as a coach and uh, the top player, I'm sure uh, the transition is new because you, you know, you know the game, but you know the game from a different end and now you were imparting knowledge to this young countryman. So did you have a little bit of uh, Norman or was it all sort of linked? What, what, what was the well, approach? I was just trying to take my own my own experience from the 10 12 years I I played myself on tour and of course every player is different Elias was and still is in a little bit uh, different situation compared to myself when when I started to to work with Magnus when I think when we started they were Elias was ranked ranked 300 in the world and when I started with Magnus I was between 15 and 20 in the world so the situation was different but of course you know there's I've been in Ilya situations myself, playing futures and, and challenger tournaments, and uh, you know, again, I try to I try to take my own experience, and I I see a lot of things in Elias that I that I could really see in myself uh, when I was 20, 21, 22 years old. You know, it's it's a lot of things is is very similar, and I think. For a player, I think, and I think that's the reason why many players now they hire former former players or former top players themselves as a coach. Because uh, for me, working with Magnus, it was really nice to have someone to talk to about how how I feel, and I really know that he had been just a few years back. He had been in the same situations as I were right now, and for some reason, it always 
felt easier to talk to someone that I really knew, understood uh, what I was talking about. And, mm. uh, you know, he could he could tell me his experience and then what he did, what he tried to change and how he was thinking. Some of the things worked for worked really well for me. Some of the things didn't work that well because everybody is different. But, you know, and again, I think that's the reason why so many players are hiring former coaches now mm. or former players as coaches, I would say. Sure. And of course, we all know your big win in 2009 at Roland Garros. You're part of a trivia question and you're part of only a two-man club. It looks mm-hmm. like there won't be a third player anytime soon joining that club who've beaten Rafa Nadal at Roland Garros. Yeah. So let me ask you another question uh, because you've answered this question many times. Uh, next year, you beat Roger Federer at Roland Garros, who was a defending champion. And uh, historically, even before you beat Nadal, you had played Nadal quite tough, even in 2007 Wimbledon. But it was Federer, who, I think, whose game gave you more problems. So how big yeah. was that win when you beat him on that rainy Wednesday at Roland Garros in 2010? Oh, that was just that was just great. You know, I think, you know, what I'm more proud, actually, when people ask me, I'm, I'm actually more proud of me defending that finals you know, the, the year after. You know, to do it once was great. And I did it from from almost nowhere. You know, I was ranked around 20 in the world. And I, before that tournament, I haven't. I hadn't passed the fourth round in any Grand Slam and all of a sudden from almost nowhere I reached the final. But I'm even more proud again to say that I I managed to do the same thing the year after. And it's difficult to compare matches. As you said, you know, I always had more troubles in my career playing Roger. And I think that I wouldn't say that necessarily Roger is a better player than Rafa, but they have different game styles. And I would say that Roger's game style or I would say that Rafa's game style suited me better than Rogers. You know, I played so many times against Rafa. I won some of them. I lost. I lost some of them. But many times, getting off the court against a player like Rafa, I could even if I lost the match, I could still feel that I played pretty well today. But against Roger, there was not many matches from the I don't know 15, 20 matches we played that I felt I played well, and I realized that's because his game style didn't suit my game style at all and he made me he's extremely good player but he also was able to mix us up up his game a lot and he made me play a lot of times he made me play worse than than I would have done against a, another player so that's why it was so difficult for me to play against and then beating him uh, in the quarterfinals the next year I would say maybe I played both against Rafa the year before and, and Roger the year after. I played two extremely good matches. But I would say, you know, I probably played even a little bit better, actually, when I beat Roger the year after. Yeah, because that uh, big, I'm sure you were a top player, but that uh, uh, lopsided, uh, you know, like you said, head-to-head also factors in. So you played with greater belief to get get over the, you know, the, the Federer win, even though Nadal was uh, a task like Everest. <laughs> Yeah, but the thing is, it was different, you know, going in against against Rafa. It was, I wouldn't say it was easy, but in one way, it was a kind of nice feeling. You know, I, it was in the fourth round. I went to I went on to the, to the court, and I felt that no one in the whole world expecting me to to win this match. So I felt I could go on the court playing my game and not have any expectations at all, not from myself. Uh, not from anyone else. So, uh, actually, going into that match against Rafa, I felt 
I felt pretty good. I knew I was playing well for the last couple of weeks. I had playing extremely well on clay. I lost against him a few weeks before. Uh, the scoreline was easy, but I felt it was a pretty tough match. It's, it might sound strange for you to hear that, you know, he beat me 6-1-6 love or 6-1-6-1 or something. You know, he, he just killed me score-wise. But I I really felt after that match, I wasn't... How, how crazy it might sound, you know, I wasn't that far off. You know, I think it was a really good match. There were so many tough games, so... Even though he beat me really, really bad. Uh, that was in Madrid, score, right? Score. Yeah, that was in, in Rome. In oh, Rome. Third round, I think. You know, I felt that I wasn't that far off. And then maybe in Paris, you know, I managed to play a little bit better. You know, I played extremely well. Maybe he played 5% uh, worse than he did in Rome. You know, the margins are so small, you know, and that's what I really like about tennis. Every match is a new match. There's new conditions. And the margins are so small, you know, if you, if one player wake, wakes up in the morning and have an extremely good play, uh, day, he can he can beat almost anyone. Hmm. Uh, so right now, the current climate in tennis looks like a very familiar name. Novak Djokovic is back at the top of things and uh, looks like, you know, he'll be he'll be the man to beat in, you know, many tournaments yeah. he enters. Of course, if something changes, but right now he's won, you know, almost everything except, you know, his last match of the season. So yeah. do you see anyone challenging him or, or do you see a Djokovic dominant year coming uh, in 2019? Yeah, of course. If he if he can com- continue to play the way he played for the last six months of, of this year's season, you know, he's going to be extremely difficult to beat. Um, Roger is not playing as well right now or I would say he didn't play as well this year as he, as he did the, uh, last year you know last year coming back from that from that injury he played extremely well now Novak is playing better but I I, I wouldn't be surprised if if you know if we we talk again at the end of at the end of next year and we see those three players being the top three player in the world again, uh, which is crazy because, you know, Roger is turning 38 next year, I think, you know, he's, he's getting closer to 40 and then both both Novak mm. and, and Rafa is, is, is well over 30 now. So, you know, it's it just shows again how good of a players they are. But it's also nice to see now that some of the young players are starting to uh, to make an impact, you know, the way the way uh, Sasha Swear played in, in in London, it's just great great to see. I I was really surprised that he beat Novak in the final, but the way he played, you know, he was on that day he was just better than Novak, which which doesn't happen very often. So it's it's also nice to see you see Borna Choric, Karin Kachanov, and and I think that's exactly what the tennis needs. You know, we had three unbelievable players in Nadal, Federer and Djokovic and they've all been such a good ambassador, ambassador for the sport. They help create a lot of interest for the sport and and of course when they retire it's not going to be, you know, of course they, they're going to play for, for a few more years if they can stay injury free but, you know, sooner or later they all will retire and then I think it's it's it's, it's a challenge for, challenge for ATP and for the sport to get new players coming up, new profiles, new top players. All right, let's wrap this up. A couple more questions and I'll let you go. I know it's getting close to 45 minutes already. So is there anyone in the new uh, generation that 
if given a chance, you would be interested in, in, in the coaching assignment if that comes your way? Yeah, of course. You know, coaching coaching Elias for a year was was a really nice time. I enjoyed it a lot. You know, I I always say that uh, being a coach is is the closest you you can get to to being a player yourself. You know, for the first time in in many years, I got those feelings back a little bit. You know, every day was it was it was a match day. You know, I felt a little bit nervous. Sometimes it's even I, I was even more nervous sitting on the side watching because. When you're on on court, you can at least do something yourself. But all you can do is just when when you're a coach, all you can do is just do uh, during the match, just sit there and watch. And 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 sometimes it was it was even more hard than playing myself. But I really enjoyed it. You know, the only reason we stopped that, you know, I have a family with two small kids, and for a year I was traveling with Elias, you know, 25, 30 weeks. Um, and I was working with my with my own company, RS Tennis. I was traveling for 15 weeks, so for one year I was I was almost away every week. And right now, where I am in my life, um, it's it's really difficult to do that, you know, with small kids. But it's it's something in the in the future. It's something I'm really interesting interested in in, in doing because it's uh, it was I had a really good time and it was I I learned a lot and I think I helped Elias to improve a lot of things and that's a really nice feeling when you work on something with the player and you see after a while he starts to do it better he starts to understand and learn it and also implementing in matches it's um, it's a really really nice feeling. All right, so let's end this uh, conversation by telling the audience what your brand is, what you've been up to as a businessman. So uh, five years ago, uh, yeah, it's almost five years ago, um, you know, I decided to start. I wanted to, I've been working as a tournament director uh, for Stockholm Open, as we spoke about, but I felt that, you know, even though I was a tournament director for a tennis tournament, I wasn't really as close to the tennis as I wanted you know I play tennis basically every day uh, for my whole life since I was four years old I wanted to do something that was even closer to tennis and as a player I was really picky about materials I was really interested you know and one day uh, idea came up came up in my head that you know why not try to develop a tennis ball you know a, a tennis ball that i really like and and i can i can put my name on and i and be proud of calling it a really high quality ball uh and in the beginning you know it kind of started as a fun project um i didn't have any plans more than try to see if i could do it myself and develop it and you know after a while when when we had the finished product we start i started to hand it out to friends uh, that I knew around the area and also to some of the top players and the feedback I got from, from almost, or I would say every one of them was, this is a great ball. And I started to think about maybe I should start a company and then and, and do business about it. And I don't, I haven't regretted for a second. It's, it's, it's really fun. And that's, that's where I, I spend most of my time now with the company. We, um, we have a bigger, uh, bigger brand now. We do strings and grips and all sorts of kind of tennis accessories. And uh, I'm happy that I have this because I really enjoy it. And that's what I realized, you know, now that you can do any work. But if you if you been able, if you be, can be able to do something that you really like, 
as I did during my 20-25 years career of tennis. It's it's such a privilege. So I'm really happy I started this this company. I wish you all uh, the success in the world for, and hopefully we see the Robin Sorling tennis balls in many tournaments in years to come. Hopefully, that's our plan. All right, Robin, thanks uh, for your time. It was a great chat. I could have gone on forever, but I know you know this is this is still plenty, and audiences would really uh, dive into your inputs regarding tournament directorship and playing days and Federer, Nadal, Norman, and Wawrinka. So this was a great chat. I enjoyed it, and thanks once again for doing it. Thank you. Thanks for having me.